All right. Well, if you weren't awake after that bumper intro music, you are now, right? You feel ready? That, that kind of music gets me pumped. Like, I'm ready to go and attack a breakfast burrito like no other right now. Pastor Greg was talking about it last week, and he said he wanted to drop in off a helicopter. That just shows the, the little difference between him and I right there, right? That tells you how different we are in that way. Uh, he wants to go do stunts like a movie. I want to eat. So we get encouraged and inspired in different ways, don't we? Well, my name's Nicholas Hershey, like the chocolate. I am related to Milton Hershey, but that's on another topic for another day. Um, I want to introduce you to someone, uh, someone important to me. I've been stalking this girl for a few months now, and, and I have a picture of her. No, I'm just, this is my wife. Um, some of you just got real uncomfortable. You, that was too real for you. No, this is my wife. Um, this is actually the day that I proposed to her. That's why she's smiling. And uh, that, my goal as a husband is to just give her that smile every day. That's the only time I've done it. But my goal <laughs> is to do that every day. It, it's hard. And so uh, I proposed to her on that day. Now, there's a point, though. There's a point. The reason why I'm introducing you to her, for one, she's my favorite person and my best friend. So that's, that's why, uh, one. But there's another important part of that. Um, I'm going to be talking a lot today about change. I'm going to be talking about the gospel in our text, and we're going to be in Acts 17. So if you want to open there, I'll meet you there in just a moment. But what's interesting about this is on this day, a huge change happened. A girlfriend became a fiance, right? And there's a huge difference there. In fact, I looked up the word fiance. It's a French word. And this word fiance is specifically used to describe a person who deletes their Tinder account. That's actually the use of that word. That's how that's used in French. So whenever you're like, oh yeah, I deleted my Tinder account, that makes you a fiance, I guess. So that's how that works. Um, the reason why this is important is, think about this, we're Christians, right? We're different than what we were, and yet we're still looking forward because we're going to be changed again into something even better, right? She's different, right? She was a girlfriend, and then she became a fiance. And what a fiance means is that she is waiting in expectation for a day when she's going to become a wife. Now, this is a cool picture of a wedding I saw on Google, and I just wanted to copy that over. No, this is our wedding in Laguna Beach. We had our wedding. There's going to be a day, Christians, where you're going to be different than you are now, right? Thank God for the changes. We're not what we used to be. However, if you're not a believer, right, some people, and you've probably met people like this, some people aren't Christian because they've met Christians. Do you know people like that? I've met a lot of them. In fact, those are the hardest people for me to evangelize and reason with, right? And the reason why it's so hard is because they've met Christians, and it's because of the Christians that they met that they have a real hard time believing what the Bible says. They've been misrepresented, right? And, and here's the thing. I want to say this. Christians were not what we used to be. Thank God for that. However, we're not perfect. We're flawed. But there will be a day when we're going to be glorified, have our glorified bodies. We won't have pain when we wake up in the morning. We're longing for that day. We're, we're longing for, we are called the bride of Christ. And so this is what we long for. Um, so we're in our series. It's called Current. Current is our current series. It has two meanings, this, uh, this series. The, the current, in, in this way, 
you think of, is the gospel still current, right? Some people would say no to that. I think uh, after today, we're going to argue that the gospel is current and relevant even today. Um, I also uh, think that the gospel has power. Now, you think of current like electricity. We have appliances, we have our phones, you have blenders, uh, all those things that you use electricity for, right? All various different kinds of appliances, same power that flows through those appliances. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is relevant. Last week, uh, Pastor Greg, he brought in a prop. He brought in a, a cable charger, right, a phone charger and a plug. Uh, this week, I brought a, char- uh, a taser, and I just need a volunteer. Anybody would let me tase them. If you raise your hand, there is prayer in the back corner after this. You need to go back there after this. Well, let's get into the text. We're going to Acts 17. A uh, little bit of recap. So last week, in our, in our first message of the series, we were in Philippi. And, uh, well, Paul was. We weren't. We went and joined him there in a way. Uh, but Paul was in Philippi. And remember, uh, in Philippi, uh, they were a very Roman-centric uh, people, right? They were kind of patriotic to the Roman Empire. They were veterans of the military. Um, so that, that kind of is what we were talking about there, which made... Uh, Paul, very unique and gifted to be able to go there because he was a Roman citizen. Um, Now, Paul, he basically gets put in jail, he gets beat up, and then he comes over to Thessalonica, which is where we're picking up in this story. In verse 2, Paul goes to a synagogue in, in Thessalonica, and when he went in, as was his custom... And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, hold on to that, that phrase there, as was his custom. Paul regularly would go into the synagogue, is what that's saying. He would often go into the synagogue. And when he was in the synagogue, he would reason with the Jews from the scriptures. This was Paul's custom. And the reason why Paul would do this is because Paul was uniquely equipped to bring the gospel to the Jews. Paul, himself a Jew, was uh, raised as a Pharisee, right? He became a Pharisee. In fact, when we are introduced to Paul in the, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, earlier in Acts, Paul is persecuting the church, right? As a Pharisee, he's saying these guys are heretics, and he was killing Christians. He was actually killing them. Now, he gets changed, and he goes from Pharisee to he becomes a Christian. So Paul is uniquely gifted and experienced to be able to bring the gospel and reason with the the Jews and the synagogue. And so my first point that I want to make here today is that the gospel doesn't change, but places do. Where we bring the gospel is is different, right? And and what what I want to point out is that Paul goes to synagogues because he was a Pharisee and a Jew. You go to whatever your context is. I would, I would put it this way. Um, you have your own unique customs, right? Uh, what are you accustomed to going to? You have your jobs. You're uniquely gifted and qualified to go to your job and bring the gospel there or to your work or to your friends, or to your family. You have your context just like Paul does, and you are uniquely equipped to bring the gospel to your context in the exact same way that Paul was uniquely equipped to bring the gospel to Philippi and now Thessalonica. You are equipped. Uh, Here's another way. I think this is the better way for me to understand. When I want to understand something, I got to put it in like a picture, right? I would say this. You get KFC with it. 
right? Because you have been seasoned for this reason. You like that, KFC? Right, so you're the colonel. There's 11 herbs and spices. You are just the right recipe to bring the gospel to whatever your context is. So if you like food, you're going to love my analogies. I want to introduce you to a word, all right? Uh, Paul went in, as was his custom, right? And then he reasons with the Jews in the synagogue from the scriptures, right? So the first word that Luke, the uh, author of our text this morning, the first word that he uses, there are six key words that I'm going to introduce to you. The first word that he uses is this word reasoned. This word reasoned is uh, the Greek word dialegami. Now that probably sounds familiar. And the reason why it sounds familiar is because it's also where we get the word dialogue. Does that sound right? So this word dialogue, so when Paul goes into the, the Jewish synagogue, he's dialoguing with them, but he's reasoning with them. In fact, in this way, he, it might be more of an argument is what is kind of implied in this specific text. But this word here, reason, is the primary technical term that Luke uses when he describes Paul and his evangelism in the Jewish synagogue. Ten different times between our text today And chapter 24, does Luke use this specific word to describe what Paul is doing when he goes to the synagogue? Uh, And now apply that to yourself. When you are bringing the gospel, you need to use reason. You need to be reasonable. And and you're having a dialogue with somebody when you're bringing the gospel to whatever it is, is your context. In verse 3, we see that Paul, after he's reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, he's now... explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then he says this, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So there's two words here that, that, Paul, uh, that Luke introduces us to. This is the second and the third of our six words we're going to be looking at. <clears throat> so first he reasons, right? And now he's explaining. Now here's the thing about this word. This word explaining in the Greek literally means open up. He's opening up to them the scriptures. Um, We see this same word used in this verse here. Uh, In Luke 24, it says that, Did not our hearts burn within us while he, Jesus, talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us, right? So Jesus, I mean, can you just picture this for a moment? Jesus is there, they're with him. Remember, these, these were eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. They walked with him, they talked with him. How cool is this? They actually got to open up the scriptures and have a conversation and learn from the scriptures themselves from the one who authored it. That is incredible. But that's the picture here. Jesus opened up the scriptures. Now, Paul is opening up the scriptures. He's opening up his audience to the information that he's trying to uncover for them. And, and when he does that, they're going to have objections, and they have questions, and they have opposition. And so that's where that next word, proving, right? So when he opens up these ideas, and he opens them up to this Jesus who we see in the Old Testament, right? He's seen but not seen in a way. Now he's proving, no, no, this is the Jesus that, that is being pointed out. This is the Messiah that they had, <clears throat> excuse me, they had been waiting for. Now, there's a unique context with the Jews. First century Jews, right, they, um, they were unique. And this, this kind of brings me into my next point. Uh, the gospel doesn't change, but the hearers do, right? There is a context. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, 
Now, Paul's audience, first century Jews, uh, they, they were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for someone to come. And they, remember, they're under Roman occupation, so they're excited about a Messiah coming and overthrowing Rome. That's, that was their expectation. What's interesting is if you read the uh, Old Testament, ours ends with Malachi, right? The last book in our Old Testament is Malachi. The Jewish canon's a little bit different. Theirs ends with First and Second Chronicles, what we would call First and Second Chronicles. The reason why I bring that up is because the entire Old Testament is leaning forward. It's pointing toward something, more specifically, someone, right? And there's this lean as you're reading the Old Testament that it's putting and pointing toward someone. When you read First and Second Chronicles, that book was written after the events of their exile in Babylon. They had been exiled in Babylon, and now they come back into their homeland, right? And remember, there are three main real big promises that God had made to the Jews. One, that they would be uh, living in a land, that they would have their own land, right? So they were in their homeland when this was written. The second part of that was that they would have a temple, and they were rebuilding the temple. The third thing, what we see in 2 Samuel 7 is this, that a a ruler, a king from the line of David would inhabit and occupy the throne from Jerusalem forever and ever. David was promised that. So what these Jews in First and Second Chronicles, the underlying question they were asking is, where is our King David? We were promised a Messiah. We were promised a king. Do those promises still apply? So First and Second Chronicles is asking that question, but it never gets answered. There's a cliffhanger, and then God doesn't speak to Israel for 400 years, bringing us to the New Testament. And when we pick up our New Testament, Matthew writing to the Jews, knowing what they're searching for, what they're longing for, the king, David, to rule and reign forever and ever, does that promise still apply? Matthew answers that question. He says, this is Jesus, this is the genealogy of Jesus, son of David. What Matthew is saying is the, the David you've been waiting for this whole time, Jesus is that king. This is the one that we've been waiting for. So that's the context of the Jews in the first century. That's the context that we're talking about. When Paul is going and he's answering that question in the same way that Matthew does, here's the one we've been waiting for this whole time, Jesus, I'm proclaiming to you, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, they had pushback. Well, we have expectations. We think that the Messiah is supposed to do this and that. Jesus died. He suffered and died, and not just died, he died a criminal's death on the cross. How can he be this king that we're long awaiting for? And I think he would have gone to texts like this and showed them. Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before Jesus ever lived, says this about Jesus, and look how close this matches up with what we know about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced. That's pretty specific. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see Jesus in that statement? Paul would have gone to verses like that and showed this is the Jesus. He would be uh, reasoning with them in the scriptures. He'd be explaining to them in the scriptures. And this is proving to them that this is what was supposed to happen. God had a plan 
all along. That's the whole point. Uh, one of the ways in, you know, I tell you, I have my own analogies. This is how I understand things. Hopefully it works for you. It works for me. Um, I, I wish Baskin Robbins would come out with like their own version of the Bible, right? 31 flavors, Baskin Robbins Bible edition. Um, I, I think of it like this. If just like the gospel is the same, it doesn't change, right? But we do, right? All of us, we, we, we are changed by the gospel, right? The gospel doesn't change, it's the same. It's all ice cream, Baskin Robbins, but there are different flavors. So if you don't wanna be stuck with gross vanilla ice cream, you maybe are a more Rocky Road type person. That's okay. You're different, right? We have all kinds of different Baskin Robbins flavors represented here in the church, right? But here's the main thing. It's got to be ice cream. The gospel can't be changed. We can't change the gospel. We don't have that luxury. The gospel stays the same, but our context does. Does that make sense? Some of you don't like ice cream. That's okay. Uh, You also see here, this is the next word that I want to introduce you to, proclaim. Nope, that's not the next word. I skipped a spot. This is important, though. (laughs) Um, so, so what I wanted to make the point, right, just like the Baskin Robbins, in this verse here, we've been talking about the context in Paul, right? Paul's context, who he's talking to, but you have your own context. I've been mentioning that. Uh, I think we have a little bit of freedom. We can't change the gospel, but we could change our style. And here's, here's why I look at that. So in Hebrews 13, it says, through him, let us then continually offer up praise, praise of sacrifice. I messed that up. Let's start over. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So it's a beautiful picture here, right? The fruit of the lips is what we're talking about. But this word, these words, that acknowledge, that is actually a word. In the Greek, it's, it's a compound word, homo, or homo, same, logos, which means word, reason, or logic. We get the word logic from that. We get the, uh, the, the suffix ology from that. Right? So what this is saying, right, is the same word, right? So the fruit of our lips should be the same word, and that same word is his name. Does that make sense? Our definition of this word homologous is this, corresponding in origin, but not necessarily in structure. Corresponding in origin, but not necessarily in structure. What that means is that as long as we don't change the gospel, because that stays the same, we have some freedom to uh, bring the gospel and introduce the gospel in different ways, right? What that means is that the gospel isn't limited to the first century Jews. The gospel transcends time and people groups. The gospel is good and useful for every person of all time, regardless of race, gender, any of that. The gospel is valuable and powerful for every person who has ever lived and who will ever live. Amen? So we need to proclaim that gospel. And that's the fourth word that I was intending to introduce you to earlier. We proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel that we need to proclaim is Jesus Christ. He is the name that we should be proclaiming. In verse 4, it says that uh, some of those Jews that he was reasoning with, they were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Right? So two more words get introduced us that, that Paul is introducing us to, uh, showing us the 
the evangelism of Paul, and these are the two words, persuaded and joined. So when we proclaim the gospel, we're not just necessarily um, like just sharing information and then, and then come in, oh, wow, that's what you believe. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, this, is, this is what I believe. Well, cool, let's go get some Baskin-Robbins, and that's the end of it. <laughs> There's a goal, right? There's a goal to proclaiming the gospel. It's not just that, yeah, I, just, I was just curious what you believe. No, there's a goal. We are trying to persuade people so that they join the gospel and join God's mission. And now, when we say we want, you know, we're talking about like conversion is the idea that this word is, is talking about. When we're talking about someone joining the church and becoming a part of God's church, it's not just about numbers, right? It, we don't necessarily care about the size of a church as far as population. We, we don't necessarily care about that. But what we do care about is this. For every person that becomes part of the church, what I think of, that's another changed life. That's another saved marriage. That's another restored person. That's another person healed. That's another person who has a different destination from where they started, right? So when I talk about uh, uh, joining the church, I don't care necessarily about the numbers. The more the merrier because that means more people to enjoy heaven with us. But what's more important is that people are given purpose, people are given joy, and people are given hope and a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't think there's anything better than having a personal relationship with Jesus God himself. That's the best thing that has ever happened to me. Uh, when, I was, when I was 18, I graduated from high school. Most of us do that, right, around 18, right? That's the norm, we graduate from high school around 18. So I was nothing special, um, but it did happen. And uh, when I joined, literally the day I, I graduated, I picked up my diploma, I joined the Marine Corps. Is there, are there any Marines out there? Not one. Oh, wow, I'm outnumbered a lot. So um, I can protect myself, though. So in the Marine Corps, uh, I remember I joined, I went through... Uh, boot camp. Now, on the way to boot camp, you hop on a bus and you drive in, and there are gates. They're not pearly gates, but there's gates. And so you go in, you go through boot camp. And I remember uh, as I was on the bus or sitting down, they're telling you, like, put your head down. And, and this guy, a drill instructor, comes onto the bus. And this guy was, I'm assuming he was hangry. I just, he was mad. And he steps on the bus, he just starts yelling. I was like, I don't even think I did anything wrong, but apparently I did, I didn't even know it. And he's just yelling at me, he's so mad, and he's all fired up, and he's like, you're only gonna say three things from this time forward. Yes, sir, no, sir, aye, aye, sir. And I was like, well, that's easy. That, that's actually pretty easy. I can say three things, so we're all, we're all good to go here. And uh, he's like, get off the bus and stand on these yellow footprints. And I just think that's the best, right? Super strong, manly Marines yellow cute footprints but we could stand on that we could do that all day so we go on there stand on these cute yellow footprints the marine corps is so tough and then also so loving and gentle aren't they and um and i just remember that but here's the thing we go through all this training right the marine corps recruit training is the longest hardest recruit training uh in, in the entire military, right? We, we have three months. The closest to us is the Army and the Air Force, and they're two months. So that, that's okay. But um, are there any Army, Air Force out there? Again, I could defend myself. So, so you know, we go through boot camp. Now, here's the thing. When we, when we go through boot camp, right, we're getting worked. They're, they're just drilling you, and you're, you're going through all these things. 
I'm not going through boot camp for no purpose, though. I'm going through training because they want you to change, right? You came in as a civilian, but on graduation day, they give you an Eagle Globe and Anchor. Eagle Globe and Anchor, at least at the time when I was in the Marine Corps, was the third most recognized symbol in the entire world. The number one most recognized symbol in the entire world is the cross. Amen. Number two, McDonald's Golden Arches. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, that's what I said. Um, outstanding. Yeah, I love McDonald's too, but I don't know that it's the second best. Yeah, anyway, but number three the Eagle Globe and Anchor. That's the third most recognized symbol in the entire world. So when you're standing there and you're at the position of attention and you're, you see your family for the first time in three months on graduation day, you go through a change. They give you an Eagle Globe and Anchor. You're no longer a civilian. You're a United States Marine. That is a, a, a moment in time that I'll never forget. The gospel isn't gonna change. But you know what? We should be changed by the gospel. If you're a Christian, the gospel should have effected an, a massive change in your entire life. You should be changed by the gospel. And this is super important. This is so very important. Remember at the beginning I was talking about, have you ever you know, met the Christians where you're like, I'm not a Christian because of those Christians, right? That's because sometimes we don't allow the, the gospel to change us the way we really should, right? We need to let the gospel change us. Uh, think of it in this way. Um, every, every person, every human being is created in the image of God. We know that from Genesis 1. Male, female, you bear the image of God. Christians are different in this way. Christians are also created in the image of God, but we bear his name. We represent him. People are going to judge our king and our savior based off of what they see in you. You represent the king. And that matters. That's huge. And I don't know about you. I never, ever feel like I represent him the way he deserves to be represented. He's so much better than I can ever represent him. I, sometimes I'm like, man, he really should pick somebody else. But he allows us to represent him. And he's so faithful and so amazing I just never feel like I can ever live up to that. You know, Jesus, just talking about his amazing, he was brilliant. The Pharisees hated this guy, this king. They hated him. And they would always try to trap him. So they got him involved in this little controversy. They asked him a fun question, one of our favorite questions of all time, should we pay taxes? Everybody loves taxes in our context, right? So we don't really relate as well with this idea, but try to imagine a world where you don't like to pay taxes. I know it's kind of rough, but you know, some of you are like, wow, I can't wait till April 15th. I get to pay all that taxes. I'm looking forward to it. You have the day set aside. You're gonna have a celebration, right? That's not how they felt about it, right? Uh, so it's hard for us to relate, but that's not really how they felt about it. The first century Jews, they were under Roman occupation. Rome ruled them. When they paid taxes, it didn't go to their country even. It went to Rome. So if Jesus says, yeah, you should pay taxes, then he has a whole bunch of people who are no longer his friends, right? They're like, no, we don't, yeah, no, that's not good for us. We don't want to pay taxes. But then if he says, no, you should pay taxes, uh, or you should not pay taxes, then he's in opposition to Rome, right? So he's caught in a little bit of a pickle. 
But because Jesus is Jesus, and he's absolutely brilliant, he says this. He said, bring me a coin. And they bring him a coin, and he says, whose image is on this coin? And they say, Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, right? And give to God what belongs to God. Now, Ravi Zacharias uh, says this, and I, 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 was just, I thought it was so, super profound. He says this. They, they should have asked this follow-up question, and they never did. They should have asked, what belongs to God? And if they did, I think Jesus would have replied in this way. Whose image is on you? God's image is on you. Therefore, you belong to him. You belong to God because you bear his image. He created you in his image for his purpose. And I can guarantee you this, his purpose is better for you than your purpose is for yourself. You belong to him. But Christians, hear me out. Christians, you don't just bear his image. The third commandment of the 10, the 10 commandments says this, don't bear his name in vain. You bear his name. Don't bear his name in vain. There are people out there that are judging your king based off of what they see in you. So back to the text in uh, Acts 17, verses 5 through 10, we see that the Jews were super jealous. They weren't really fond of everything that Paul had to say, so they formed a mob, and they basically started a riot. Now, this is kind of like... (laughs) relates to our culture a little bit, right? Uh, Our culture, we don't do so well when someone disagrees with us, right? We don't handle that so well. Uh, Our culture, you know, when we disagree, it's like a total fight. You know, it's like CNN versus Fox. It's kind of wild. So, um, right, that's kind of what's going on. Thessalon, we, our culture right now relates with the Thessalonians in that way, Right? But what we're going to see here in a minute is that the Bereans handle it uh, completely uh, different. What the Thessalonians say is, is that they, they actually say this about Paul and his friends. They say, these men have turned the world upside down. That is actually a backhanded compliment. That's what they were trying to do in the first place. Their whole goal was to turn the world upside down. It was wrong in the first place. So uh, I, I just love that. I think that's one of the best verses in our, in our passage. Uh, but then there's this interesting story where Jason, uh, who was with Paul, uh, Paul was staying at Jason's house. Jason gets beat up and then uh, they take some money from him, right? And this is just, uh, I'm thinking about, like, Paul, what a great friend, right? So uh, I, I wrote this better than I, uh, I have it in my mind. So Jason gets ripped off while Paul rides off. <laughs> That's not a great friend. So be a better friend than Paul was to Jason is what I'm going to get out of that. Um, in verse 11, Paul's in Berea now. Paul was probably a great friend, okay? Uh, I'm just, I thought it was funny how that worked out. Anyways, so in verse 11, Paul's in Berea, and, and this is what Luke says about them. He says, now these Jews were more noble than in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true, right? So here's something just happened in the text. Luke is writing here, and he's writing a a, a historical narrative. He's writing events as they happened according to his recollection, right? This is descriptive historical narrative. But right here, Luke transitions to where it was describing events, and it still is. It was descriptive language. It now becomes prescriptive language. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What what Luke wants us to know about the Bereans is is that they were doing what we should do. Uh, 
What were they doing? What does Luke want us to do? He wants us to examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. We should be daily in our scriptures examining the scriptures to see if they're true. Have you ever been to a 3D movie? Not a single person. Well, there are 3D movies, and let me tell you about that experience. When you go, they give you these glasses, and they don't look like, uh, I don't have my glasses, but they give you these 3D glasses, and when you watch the movie, if you don't have the glasses, the picture is fuzzy. You don't get to see the picture the way that the creators of the movie intended you to see it, right? But when you put on the glasses, you can see the movie the way that the creators intended the movie to be seen. And in the same way, when you study your Bible, when you, know, when you examine the scriptures, you can see creation the way that the creator intended for creation to be seen. It's like putting on the 3D glasses. That's what Luke wants us to do. Here's another example. I think this is super fun. Remember in Exodus, right? So God had promised Israel um, that, that they would have a land flowing with milk and honey. You remember that? Um, so think about it in this way. I think it's kind of fun, actually. Um, the, the Israelites were, uh, basically had a dead-end job in Egypt, and God sends Moses to give them a retirement plan where they get to go out and travel for about 40 years. And in this retirement plan, he sweetens the deal where he actually gives them free donuts every day. I mean, just amazing deal. And to top it all off, uh, their old employer, Egypt, um, funded the whole thing. So that's really what I get out of, uh, out of Exodus. That's how I see that story playing out. Um, here's the prescriptive point, right? Israel gets a free retirement, free travel, paid for by their dead-end job employer, and then they complain about those free donuts that they got. What? I can't relate with that. I love donuts. But apparently, Egyptian food is just way better than donuts. So the, the prescriptive point here is when God gives you free donuts, don't complain or he won't give you the milk. <laughs> right? Because they never got to go into the land of flowing milk and honey. So they're getting free donuts, no milk. Their mouths were all dry. That's the prescription that, that we were talking about in Exodus. That's, kinda, that's how I see prescriptive versus descriptive language. It might be weird and off, but that's how I see it nonetheless. So verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few or many Greek women of high standing. I want to point out the diversity here. Throughout our text, right, in verse 4, remember, we saw uh, Jews became Christians, devout Greeks, leading women, right? And right here we see more Jews. We also see a whole lot of Greeks, but also women of high standing and men. Leading women and women of high standing. You notice that. Notice it doesn't just say all the poor people, the desperate people, the, the crushed people. Notice that. I think there's a, a, a misunderstanding. A lot of times people think of Christians as weak and poor and desperate, right? But that is not the way I see Christians at all. In fact, think of it in these terms. We serve a God, right? Jesus has already won the battle. And not just the battle, he won the war. So when we proclaim Christ, we don't proclaim for victory. We proclaim Christ from victory. He's already won it. We're just proclaiming that victory. So we are not weak. We are meek, right? And we are, Christian, Christians understand that you do not have to be weak and sad and depressed. No, 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 no. 
you've already won. In fact, he's actually, he's already won for you. So there's all kinds of diversity here. Um, now, diversity is kind of a hot topic in our culture. I understand that. Uh, sometimes diversity gets hijacked for nefarious purposes, a lot of times in politics and all that, right? I want to stay away from that. But um, I, I think of diversity in a different way. I think that's a, like, when you think of diversity just in race or gender, those things, that's super shallow. I think that's very shallow. I think of diversity, and I think more fruitful diversity, to think of it in this way, um, diversity as far as vocation. How many vocations are represented just right here in this room? Or diversity in interests. We all have different interests. Some of you don't like donuts, so you didn't laugh at my donuts story. Um, we have different talents, different gifts. Uh, we have diversity in knowledge. Here's an unpopular idea, diversity in thought. You don't like that in universities in our culture. Diversity in comedy, all of that, right? Uh, my wife, <clears throat> excuse me, my wife is a uh, marine biologist. And so she studies biology. She's becoming a teacher um, for that. And, and what she told me, and I think this is really cool, in biology, they've discovered that the more diverse an ecosystem, the more it thrives. And it's not just because it's diverse, it's not just because it's different creatures, but the reason why it thrives is because the creatures have different functions, we're not all created the same way. We're not all created with the same purpose necessarily. We all serve a different function. And it's when we come together, all of us with our different functions, that we most thrive as the church. Does that make sense? So my next point is this. The gospel doesn't change because it doesn't need to. The gospel is not obsolete. It is absolute. The gospel comes from an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, benevolent, just God. His word is absolute because he is absolute. Amen? So how can we know or can we know if the gospel is true? Absolutely. Um, how? Well, I think our text invites us to look at things. Like, how do we know anything is true? We test it, right? And our text gives us a recipe for how to test that. Look at this. Those six words that we looked at to discover Paul's evangelism are also the ways we would test if something is true or not, right? Does this not look like the scientific method to you right here from the Bible? I wonder where they got it from. So we use reason or logic to find out if something's true. We find an explanation for things. We want to prove or disprove things. And when we discover when something is true or not true, then we proclaim it. We are persuaded and changed by it, and we persuade and evoke change in others, and we join in on the truth. That, that's really what the whole, the whole point is all about, of becoming a Christian, right? And I, and I introduce you to two different people groups, right? The Thessalonians and the Bereans. Thessalonians rejected change, and I think out of ignorance. Now, when I say ignorance, I'm not saying they were stupid. They weren't stupid, right? Uh, uh, ignorance doesn't mean stupidity. It actually means ignoring information when it's giving, given to you. Ignorance is ignoring information when it's given to you. The Thessalonians is one, one style, right? And, the, and the, they, they had ignorance. But the Bereans were different. They took the change, they welcomed it, but they tested it for truth. They at least tested it for truth. And I would ask you this, whether you're a Christian or not, who did it better? Who would you say did it better? Who would you most identify with? Are you more like a Thessalonian 
and you reject information before considering it? Or are you more like a Berean? Would you call yourself more like a Berean and say, you know what, I will at least discover and test for truth. I think that the Bereans are, are the better way, and hopefully you feel the same way. Next week, we're going to be in our current series, current, and we're going to continue through this series learning about the gospel. Um, the cool thing about next week, though, is we get to get right into the exact middle uh, verse of the New Testament. Yeah, that's cool, right? 1717, Acts 17. We're almost there. So that's going to be next week. Um, that's all for, for me today. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to continue worshiping together. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, I just thank you. I thank you so much for giving us a gospel to proclaim. Lord, I pray that may we be changed by your unchanging word so that we might promote change in a world that needs it. I just pray for this week. I pray for all of my Christian family here that you would uh, help us to represent you more appropriately. Lord, you've, you've allowed us to represent you into this world. And Lord, you know that we don't always do that effectively. We don't always reflect you and represent you the way you deserve. Lord, would you help us with that? Would you help us to be more like you? Would you help us to be more like Jesus? And that is our ask for for you today. We praise you. We glorify you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.